0: I have a bit of PTSD of the amount of
1: takes. <laughs>
0: was like, you know, the, uh, the scene with the fortune cookies, we shot that for six days and I just remember I'd heard that scene over and over and over again. <laughs> it was like in my dreams. <laughs>
1: I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times, they're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror star creators. The terror begins right after this. You may know Bill Hader from his long tenure in the cast of Saturday Night Live, or as the co-creator of the cult TV series documentary Now, or as the co-creator, star, and frequent director of the HBO dark comedy series Barry, which so far has won him two Emmys for comedy acting and multiple prizes from the Directors Guild and the Writers Guild of America. In 2019, Bill somehow also found time to appear in It Chapter Two, the second part of Andy Muschietti's blockbuster adaptation of Stephen King's epic novel. Bill loves movies, all kinds of movies, from classic Hollywood noirs to Italian grindhouse thrillers. But horror movies loom especially large in his life, and he has something interesting to say about dozens of genre classics and how they affected him. In this wide-ranging interview, conducted by History of Horror showrunner Kurt Sayanga, you'll get a look inside Bill's eclectic brain.
2: First, we'll start talking about it. Chapter two. Did you align your performance with Finn Wolfhard's, the young Richie?
0: Yeah, I, wa- I mean, I watched Finn Wolfhard a little bit, but we kind of have a lot of the same mannerisms, and you know, we laugh the same, and you know, I think overall we're just both kind of dickheads. So <laughs> I don't know. He's the one that got me that part. You know, he's he. They asked them during press for the first one, who do you want to play the adult Richie, and he said me, and and someone sent that to me in an email i went oh that's nice that's sweet and then my agent called me and said no andy machete wants to meet you to be in the movie and i went wow this finn kid's really powerful it was a little bit of like it needed to be an extension of what he was doing i guess but i didn't over i didn't think about it too much
2: i'm seeing andy and barbara tomorrow actually oh they're and great i guy interviewed them for first season as well yeah they're really, oh yeah they're the best yeah andy's visual style is particularly pretty interesting so like when you're uh on set or watching it like how how is he putting that together like how much of the for instance the uh, monster effects were they practical or cgi or
0: no most of the monster effects were cg um now he did have his friend jorge be the witch woman who attacks jessica chastain in the house but then the face was kind of augmented in cg um But yeah, I mean, most of it, especially the last half of that movie, the last, the kind of big battle with the the Pennywise spider was just Andy with holding this giant Pennywise head and us reacting to it. And so Andy holding this head, you know, like this and saying the lines and going, ah, and screaming at us. And we had to look scared. (laughs) But yeah, most of it we had to kind of imagine. But I will say the sets were so amazing on that movie. Especially the um, the sewer. I mean, that was a bit like being in Goonies. I remember we were really excited about shooting in that the first day. And then after a while, it got old. But I think they definitely saw the difference between like the younger kids who were just thought they were on a playground and this is amazing. And then the losers in their 40s and 30s who were just, you know, wanted to go home and were concerned about getting sick and, you know.
2: Big set? Big stage?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, they took up all these massive stages. And we were on that. It was called The Cistern Set, The Final Battle Set. We were on that for, it felt like a month. And poor Bill Sarsgaard had to, it was so hot, and he had all the Pennywise gear on. And they were, I remember, I, I feel like they were throwing ice down his back. You know, they were just They were just trying to cool him down and he had to have those contacts in. and But he was always in good spirits. And Andy likes a lot of takes. So yeah, you do a lot of takes on an Andy Machete movie. I showed it to someone recently, and I had a bit of, like, PTSD of the amount of, (laughs) tanks. You know, the the scene with the fortune cookies, we shot that for six days, and I just remember I'd heard that scene over and over and over again. (laughs) It was, like, in my dreams for a week. But, um, you know, I'm just a whiny actor, so don't mind me.
2: (laughs) Are you able to divorce yourself from the experience of the movie or when you watch it, do you think exactly of how no, miserable you, you were?
0: When I watch it too, I, it is like watching the video of what you did the the summer of, you know, 2018 or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it's kind of, uh, oh yeah, I remember this day, this was going on, you know, you can't, gosh, you know, uh, so-and-so is so good in this, or wow, that shot was amazing, or that what a great sequence, or that was so cool how that cut together, and yeah, most, but no, mostly it's, oh gosh, remember it rained, and then we had a it was a cover set we needed, and then in the middle of the cover set, we had to go back outside, you know what I mean, <laughs> it's, it's always that stuff.
2: Is it true you smile when you're getting scared or yeah. you're acting scared? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I can't act scared. I'm really bad at acting scared. Not only am I a whiny actor, I'm bad at it. So, <laughs> I, yeah, I couldn't do it. Anytime I would be scared, you know, Andy would go, nah, Bill, you know, you're smiling, you know. And I would look at the monitor and I'm like, you know
2: (laughs) you bring a lot of comic relief to the film but at the same time you also have kind of its deepest emotional moments yeah yeah was that like tricky to play that
0: yeah you know and and that was stuff that wasn't really in the book and um but it you know i I appreciated andy and and the writers and and barbara allowing me to have space to kind of have something like that in a horror movie you know and and talking about his sexuality and how overt you want to be about it. And to act with people like, you know, PJ Ransom, for us to do those scenes together with this kind of weird subtext underneath it was something you didn't see in a horror movie. It added a dimension to that character and kind of like what the story's about, which is, you know, having to reckon with your past and the idea of getting older and and that your old wounds don't go away and the things you might be privately ashamed of don't they follow you forever, you know, and you have to kind of overcome them, can't push them off. So I thought that kind of dealt with that.
2: At the beginning, it has you blowing a joke for a big crowd of people. Did you draw on personal experience for that? Oh
0: yeah, yeah, daily experience. (laughs) Blowing jokes. (laughs) Yeah, that opening scene with the, that was interesting too. That was a good thing when you watch it, because when we shot it, you know, they tiled in all the, the crowd. So when we shot it, it was like, A couple rows of people, and then when I watched it, it was like, "Oh wow, oh yeah!" Didn't know there was that huge yeah. There's a huge crowd there. Oh, now the scene makes sense.
2: (laughs) Did you have a hand in solidifying the film's homage to John Carpenter's The Thing?
0: Yes, I did. I'm going to take full credit for it. because i said you have like a head spider and i was like well if you have a head that turns into a spider i mean that's from the thing and andy was like yeah yeah i know yeah we talked about i was like oh i should say are you fucking kidding and i remember we we watched it on my phone you know to make sure we got the line right and i set it in the right cadence and i look we just do one take we just try it just one take and and uh andy was like yeah sure man you know because i think as written it was something else and yeah i tried that and we did it once and it was like kind of a oh thanks man and not thinking anything would happen from it and then
2: i think it's important that it's in there because otherwise everybody who loves that film is saying like
0: yeah everybody likes thing. the thing those nerds and the yeah it was like hey whoa that's the head spider that, that's the thing come on man what are you doing
2: <laughs> <laughs> did you pick anything up from watching Andy trying to run this enormous what i assume is just... beast <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, Andy's just really patient, and he's an artist. I think, you know, when someone can draw, they're so used to having control over every element of the frame of the picture. It's very specific how he wanted you to kind of hold yourself, uh, how you picked up a glass. Uh, He just saw it so completely in his head, but at the same time wanted you to, to have room to create. But yeah, no, I I I I never really worked with with someone like that before that had such a this clear precise vision of an artist down to like our you know our wardrobe you know the very specific about how he wanted the wardrobe to look and uh, I don't know I I really appreciated that because uh, you know you make comedies and stuff He kind of just go yeah whatever you know and so it was nice to see the importance of that and to see he just cared he cared about every element anything you see on frame every sound effect every music cue every v effect uh, all the lighting everything he he had his his fingerprints on and and cared deeply so as tired as you would be and we were really tired shooting this again i'm a whiny actor there's people with way harder jobs than what i had to do But you know, you you were watching him, and he was. No one was worked harder than Andy.
2: Are you able to watch yourself in films?
0: No, no, it's a big. <laughs> it's hard doing the TV show I do because yeah, when we watch the first cuts, I think now it's just they they put it in the schedule. We'll watch the first cuts, then Bill needs a week <laughs> to just deal with him, the way he looks and sounds, and then I can come back and. Say, all right let's look at it again no I, I don't like looking at myself at all
2: when did you first see it chapter two and what did you think
0: uh i saw it chapter two for the first time at the premiere that was the first time i saw it i saw scenes from it when i did my adr and then i came to the premiere and saw it and i mean i, I just was like i can't believe i'm in this movie you know it, it, there was a just uh i love horror movies i love i grew up loving monster movies and loving those kind of films and and uh I don't know why I keep thinking of this. There's a moment in it when Pennywise the spider is revealed, you know, that Mike has been lying, didn't tell them the whole story. And Pennywise, the it's kind of the reveal of the big spider. And he's kind of looking through these, these, these little crevices and it's kind of slowly revealing what he looks like. And there's just a shot of us and there's a wind machine on me and there's lights flickering and it kind of looks like poltergeist. It looks like an 80s horror film. And I just think of that shot. Every When I remember I saw it, I was like, whoa, I'm in one of these, you know? It's like, we're, I'm going like this. And there's like wind blowing. And I was like, wow, that's cool. <laughs> the big time. Yeah, big time, really. I was like, wow, that's, that's really neat, man, you yeah. know?
2: Is the horror genre ideally suited to addressing coming-of-age stories?
0: I, yeah, I think so. I think you know they're always kind of an allegory of something. And when you're, especially monster movies, because you're you're changing, you know, you're you're physically changing. I think that's when I was young. I liked the movie Teen Wolf so much because it was like I could relate. I, it was one of the first film as, a, as when I was young that I said, "Oh, that I don't know what the word is." but it's an allegory. <laughs> you know. I didn't know what the word was at the time, but I was like, oh, it's symbolic of your hair. You're changing. It's about girls and being popular at school and all these things. And, you know, that whole movie is kind of about, you know, puberty, basically. Growing up and coming of age, I mean, fear plays a massive part of it. You know, something like Carrie, the opening of Carrie, you know, the girl having her her first period and to make that a horror scene and to make it one of the really disturbing uh, incredibly cruel scene but that that's what horror does you know so well is kind of pinpoint those things in your life and kind of amplifies it things that are are kind of universal for people and and sometimes they speak to things that you, you might privately think to yourself or things that you never thought and you go oh my god what if that happened yeah, those are, are, you know, or even, like, it's not coming of age, but something like Rosemary's Baby, you know, the fear of childbirth. And what if the baby, was <laughs> know, a demon? Um, you know, stuff like that. It's Alive. There's one. Yeah, It's Alive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Larry, who directed that? He just passed away. Larry Cohen. Larry Cohen.
2: R.I.P. Yeah. We had a monster film episode last time called Killer Creatures, but this time we have an episode called Monsters.
0: Yeah. No. <laughs> okay. Oh, go, yeah. That's a good distinction. Get more monsters yeah. out
2: of it. Amongst them include, you know, the alien, of course. Oh, yeah. Alien. So it's a classic design, and uh, the psychosexual weirdness that comes with H.R. Giger.
0: Yeah. I mean, that alien was the first movie I saw that I legitimately thought I had a disease afterwards. It made me so incredibly anxious and uncomfortable. And I th- I think Alien works so well because Ridley Scott wasn't like a big horror movie guy, you know? And I, I, I think it really helped it because he added this realism to it. I think he thought nothing against Dan O'Bannon and Ronna, Ron it. it, you know, but those guys... I think maybe the movie that they had in their head was probably closer to Dark Star, you know, or something like that. The, you know, uh,
2: Planet of the Vampires was a
0: Bava movie, right? Right. Planet of the ba- Vampires is the one they liked, you know. So, but the fact that Ridley Scott wasn't into that, and it was this kind of, I want to make this thing feel real, and the performances in that movie are phenomenal. I mean, the the famous chess burster scene. I think the reason it's so potent is because of the lead-up to it feels so natural. It almost feels like a documentary. I mean, it's the way he's covering it, it feels very lived in, and you, you feel like you're in that room and you're with these people. And what I think Ridley Scott does so brilliantly in Alien is tapping into making it feel so familiar to you. You know, that scene is, you've been in a restaurant, you've been in a diner, you've seen something, maybe someone started choking, or someone has a heart attack or there's something wrong, you know, that that awful feeling when you're eating and you hear someone go, whoa, 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 you know, and you look over and, you know, the, is there a doctor here or whatever it is? That panic, it taps into that and then it takes it into what if a thing bursts out of the fucking thing? And so, you know, it, it takes it to this other level, which is so brilliant. I mean, the other thing about Alien that I love is there's a moment at the end when she gets in the pot and you think she's okay and the hand, <laughs> you know, comes out. And you know what he does? It's so good. No music. Even when the, the face hugger falls off screen, there's no sting there. There's nothing. It just falls on her. So even watching it, I was like, wait, is that... I'm programmed as a movie goer to hear a, a, a sting, you know, a music sting. But when it didn't happen, it like reframed my brain or something where you went, wait, well that can't be... Shit, that is it. You know what I mean? And it made it 10 times scarier. Uh, I went, this guy is really fucking with me. Um, <laughs> And so... But when the, when the hand comes out, and then any other movie, the alien would have attacked her, and she would have fought it. But Instead, it's like the thing was asleep. It's like walking, it's like getting into, uh, it, it, the feeling I had watching it, it was, just, it was like being in a confined space, like getting in your car and realizing there's a big python in the backseat. And you turn around and the thing just starts to kind of uncoil and it's waking up. And and that creepiness of like, oh, I'm stuck with this thing. And at some point it's going to realize I'm in the car with it. (laughs) And and this is not going to be good. What do I do? And he does this brilliant thing where the the chair is robotic, so it has to turn around. So her back has to be to it where you get the famous poster shot of her looking behind. And the way it's... um, It's out of her control. It's all from her point of view. He set this whole thing up. I think it is one of the most terrifying scenes in any movie is that last part of Alien. And it has the best jump scare of all time when when Tom Skerritt gets it, when he comes down. Because it goes from a wide shot, and the minute Tom Skerritt looks at it, cuts in real quick. And then, oh my God. I have... Uh, clearly, I love Alien.
2: <laughs> well, at the time it came out, it was also particularly jarring that, you know, you didn't know that Ripley was the hero. You know? Yeah. It he totally seemed like Tom Skerritt was
0: the dude. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. like, oh, well, Tom Skerritt's going to be the guy, and so when he gets it, you go, okay, well, wait. What's going to be the... Who's going to be the last one left, you know? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, she's amazing. I, I... I This is sacrilege. I love Aliens. People love Aliens, but I'm an Alien fan, just... I just think it's nothing was like that. Before. Well,
2: Aliens, Aliens is a great action movie. Aliens is
0: a great action movie. That's and Alien true. Aliens is a great
2: horror movie. So it's
0: a great horror film, but it also, in its design, the way it's shot, the way it's paced, just cinematically, I think that film is a real benchmark. You know, I think it it really is. I love that movie. <laughs> Talk about John Carpenter's
2: The Thing. Oh yeah. And its place in the uh, the pantheon of memorable monster movies.
0: Yeah, I remember the first time I saw the thing, I was probably about twelve and it was a sleepover. Bunch of you know, like three or four guys and we were in someone's basement and someone had the thing and it starts and it's about a dog running in the snow, you know what I mean? And we're all like, What is this, man? you know. Uh, where are the girls? We all talked like Tommy Chung when we were 12. And then again, such a simple premise and a thing that's like really relatable. Who, who can you trust? You know, paranoia, not knowing who the thing is and knowing at any moment. I mean, it's just one of those premises that uh, make you angry because it's so simple. You know, it follows a movie, a re- more recent movie that had a similar kind of thing where you're going, Oh my God, that's such a good premise. You know, it's so simple. But it all kind of deals with uh, the fear of trusting people, you know, and feeding in on that. And that's a, I think that's a thing that a lot of people fear, you know. And there's been a lot of horror movies that dealt with that. But I, I always think The Thing is just a lot of fun. And it's also the movie where you're like, oh, Kurt Russell is like a badass. Um, Wilfred Bremley is scary. <laughs> I love the scene of Wilford Bremley where he's like, I'm fine. I'm fine, all right, and there's a noose in the background. <laughs> just let me out of here. I'm okay. And you're like, do not let him out of the fricking. <laughs> and as, but the simplest things in that movie work, and that's what John Carpenter does so well is just simple scares. like I, I even love the shot when Wolf of Brimley is the here it is, but they say I left that I turned the light off when I left I that their POV and you see the lights on okay, someone's been up there. who's been up there, you know, and where they find the spaceship. And and just the creature designs in that, Rob Bottin, and did still, I think, some of the best creature designs in any movie.
2: It's sort of like he did it, then just threw his hands up and said, "I'm done."
0: Maybe it broke his brain. I don't know. I mean, but you know, Stan Winston did the dog, but the Rob Bottin, that whole sequence with the head spider, were clear. I mean, that is one of the greatest scares in any movie. Because you know it's coming, and he does a great thing where you think it's going to be a thing. You think someone's going to turn to the thing. And you think it's going to be that guy. And then you realize, oh, he's having a heart attack. So then you go, okay, someone else has to be the thing. So then you're looking at other people, and he goes, no, it is that guy. <laughs> That's why he's having a heart attack. <laughs> so it's a, great, it's a great fake out when that moment happens. Yeah, man. And then the ending of it is great. it's just, you know, I guess we're just going to wait. You know, no answers, This this ambiguity. Except only Kurt Russell is breathing. Yeah, I know. Only Kurt Russell seems to be breathing at the end of that movie. And he's also cool enough, even in his state, to say, yeah, fuck you too, you know, or whatever. I always wonder in that moment if there's like a lot of alts, you know? Yeah, fuck you too. Go to hell. You're the thing. You're not no thing. He's like, I eh, think of something else, Kurt. That's how John Carpenter talks.
2: Of course
0: uh, i don't know what you're doing
2: I was trying to think of another sinister old man and uh will gear in seconds comes. oh through.
0: yeah yeah seconds it was like the whole thing's like on a fisheye lens that was also one of the first black and white movies i always saw like nudity and you know and i was like wait what what a, wait it's like my parents movies Why? why is rock hudson next to like nude people what's going on other high water marks for
2: you. You think in the in uh horror like what other other things do you you mentioned Carrie before too. Of yeah, course. Carrie was
0: a big one for me. Again, you know, it's like a, that feeling of being an outsider, the fear of going to school, the fear of of not getting asked to a dance, the fear of being a social outcast. I mean, that's what Stephen King does so well is he kind of can take these very universal feelings and fears and put them into something that is so relatable and at the same time so terrible and uh, revenge and all the people who were terrible to you brian de palma i think is one of his best movies and his kind of bigness you know he's bold you know it's like operatic just covered in blood and everything you know i think it works in that movie really well even like the really silly stuff you know like when her and william Cat are like spinning around on the I've watched that with people and they all start laughing, but I'm like, you know what? That's how it feels when you're in love and someone accepts you or whatever. It's like the whole world's spinning. It's out of control. Like She's so deliriously happy. And I I think the most terrifying shot in that movie for me for some reason is when the blood falls on her, the whole, you know, we're all going to laugh at you, you know, that thing. And she has her head up like this and it's when... She's sad, and it's the moment when she's mad, and she like looks down slowly, and it's Sissy Spacek's eyes. She's covered in blood, but her eyes are really big and blue. And, oh, my, I think it's right before the split screen starts. I found that. So I remember the first time I saw that. I, I think I backed up a little bit. I went, oh, no. Oh, this is bad. This is bad. <laughs> I've never seen her mad yet. I haven't seen her mad yet. This is not good.
2: Yeah, she gives that look. It goes to split screen, and then the drone begins. <laughs>
0: And and I love um, Piper Laurie in that movie, too. It, it seems like a big performance, but I, you know what? I grew up in Oklahoma around a lot of fundamentalist Christian people and, and stuff, and it was just, you know, that's how they probably were at home. It felt like being stuck in a house with an insane person, because there's a scene with Amy Irving's mom that's earlier where she kind of holds, I, I pray for you or whatever. That feels like, you know, she's she's trying to keep it reined in, you know, but then when she's home and it's just her and her daughter, she's, uh, you know, nuts. You know, I could see your dirty pillows was on line or when she's cutting. the, She's great.
2: De Palma, of course, often gets hit with the uh, Hitchcock ripoff. These days, of course, we accept that more as a symbiosis of what's out there in the language of cinema. But yeah. when you also look at Carrie in some of his films, I think he's drawing a lot from the Italians, like from Bava um, and Argento.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's like a really... Italian filmmaker I mean it's it to me it's, it's opera I mean I just it's just bold it's huge all his movies the camera work and and I get the criticism that it's all kind of technical and but I I just find it really cinematic I just appreciate things that are really cinematic but the performances you could tell he's just interested in things that are big you know everything's got to be big and you know, the colors the the music it's it's all very romantic and there's nothing subtle he's just not interested in anything subtle but i i, I appreciate that I, I mean that's pretty pretty great yeah the kind
2: of films he likes he wants yeah, to. yeah
0: why 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 spend all that time on something that you're not interested in yeah
2: last house on the left oh yeah you are a person who's certainly seen Igmar bergman's the virgin spring yeah yeah I, I like the
0: virgin spring a lot yeah i think it's a great film
2: is it an effective adaptation?
0: Is uh. <laughs> <laughs> Last House on the Left an effective interpretation of the Virgin Spring? Um, I mean, for some people, I'm sure they'd rather watch Last House on the Left than a Bergman movie. I get that. I mean, it is like the grindhouse version. But it's still, Last House on the Left is kind of just like the world's most fucked up after school
1: special. <laughs> you
0: know, it's It's kind of just like oh my god if i go into the big city and smoke weed i'm going to get like horribly molested in the woods and then shot in the head you know i mean it it so that's a, that's a very rough movie but it's it's um i still think the the scene in virgin spring when they the rape scene in that is is awful you know any rape scene is awful but the one in that and that one is in particularly really intense and it's made in 1960 and again no music you are just, and you know something terrible is going to happen and you're just watching this thing unfold. You know, Bergman really wants you to be with that young girl and he also wants you to be with the parents. You know, I always feel like that's who were, he's seeing his story through their, their eyes. And kind of the the ambivalence of of violence and revenge and, you know, and, and that whole image of Max Masaito with the tree, you know, can you, can this one man just force his will upon nature you know can I just fucking pull this thing it's like no you can't and it's such a striking image Laos House on the Left does not really have that I feel like it's kind of more of a grindhouse you know Marty Cove is like it's got a bumbling cop I mean it has one of the most violent scenes you've ever seen with the dad with the chainsaw killing everybody and then it cuts this cre- this credit sequence with still frames of everyone at the end of the movie, like, and you're like, what? The tone shift to the credits in Last House the Left is fucking nuts. You're like, that's the thing where you're like, okay, everybody was on drugs when they made this. Because it's literally one of the most violent, you know, it's incredibly violent ending. And that guy was, I want you to blow your brains out. That was the way I remember and the guy shoots himself in the and then dad comes in you know cuts him up with a chainsaw and then it's like it felt like the guy who funded the movie was like my brother's band has a song that you need to play over the end of this that's a jaunty <laughs> jaunty little number and you know have nice pictures of the girls that were raped earlier in the movie and so it's them smiling and all that shit and I was like yeah this is not a Bergman
1: movie <laughs> <laughs> right
0: The
2: Evil Dead. I've heard that you love The Evil Dead. Yeah,
0: tr- The Evil Dead. I, for me, The Evil Dead was was huge. Evil Dead, saw it late at night on USA Up All Night, hosted by Rhonda Shear. I watched a movie called Vice Squad, which is a good movie. It's pretty intense. So I watched Vice Squad, and I was like, well, that was great. I'm going to go to bed. And it was like, next up, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead. And it was, you know, whatever, three in the morning. And I was like, Oh, I watched this. I was 15. And the minute it started, the boom out of the smoke and going across the water, I went, What is this? You know? And it was kind of like listening to like punk rock music for the first time, where I thought movies, in order to make movies, I had to have a budget like Close Encounters of the Third Kind or something. Like you had to be Steven Spielberg or Coppola or Scorsese or these people to be able to make something. And the minute, Evil Dead started. I went, wow! I see how they're they're doing this. It kind of looks like the videos that I'm making on my own, but this is way more effective. The guy, whoever's operating the camera in this, was incredibly talented. It was very effective. the the, the way they shot it and the way they it was cut and paced and the the pacing of it. And I just went, oh, I could maybe I could do this, you know. And then that was when all my videos changed to me, you know, chasing my sisters around in the woods with a camera and trying to match those shots and, and learning about lenses and going, oh, they had a, you know, a 10 millimeter lens. Oh, okay, that makes sense. And got me really interested in making my own movies was seeing the Evil Dead. It was what gave me the confidence to say like, oh, I don't have to be like some sort of you know genius wonderkin or whatever. It's like, you can just kind of like figure out how to do this stuff. You don't need a lot of money. And so I found it incredibly inspiring and then on the show I do, Barry, there's a, there's an actress named Jessie Hodges, plays the agent, uh, Lindsay, and her mom is Ellen Sandweiss, who's gets uh, raped by the tree. in <laughs> Evil Dead. <laughs> and then she was like, my mom was in the Evil Dead. I go, she's the one that gets molested by the tree. <laughs> she was like, that's her, you know. Um, which is the most unfortunate scene in that movie. It's it's like it's a movie that I show people. And I go okay. There's a scene in this that's kind of lame and really unfortunate because the rest of the movie it, it tonally doesn't fit with the movie. It feels like when I first saw it, I almost turned it off. I was like, "What is this?" But then I stuck with it, and it was so good after that for me. It almost felt like again the people paying for it or whatever it was like, "We need something fucked up sexually need in the a movie. Sex scene. We need a sex scene." So they're like, "Well, how about a tree?" uh rapes a woman um but uh it was really terrible it's a really terrible scene so anytime i watch that i always fast forward over it i'm I'm, and i've heard that sam Raimi's also regrets doing that but joel cohen was the assistant editor on that movie and so loving blood simple and watching blood simple and hearing some of the sound effects from evil dead and the blood simple you could tell he brought it over you know it's the, you know use the same library on some things and that was a massive massive film for me yeah I, I don't think i would try to have tried to like really pursue filmmaking if i hadn't seen that when i was 15.
2: well sam Raimi and the cohen's think you could argue really introduced certain kind of film language like kind of real gonzo approach to yeah visuals. the
0: projectile cinema kind of thing the camera the shaky cam yeah where the camera's on a two by four and they run with it Wow, wow, wow All that stuff, yeah. Yeah. That's really great. Yeah, the original Dawn of the Dead, the George Romero one. Yeah, that was, I love that movie. You know, both that and and Nigh Living Dead were were the first horror films I saw that had that kind of social commentary where you were like, oh, wow, you put the horror film in the foreground and you you get me into the theater because I'm like, oh, wow, zombies, zombies in a mall, you know, and then as you're watching, you're like, oh, this is actually kind of a great commentary, you know, consumer society and... You know, you can live in a mall and have all these things and never want to leave and then when other people want it, that's what it's other humans that fuck up their their utopia, not the zombies, you know. I thought that was really great. That movie also, I love the way it's all cuts. There's only one dolly shot in that whole movie. The whole movie is just cuts. I mean, I you know what I think when I think of that movie, weirdly, the images that come to my mind Or just that hole open at the TV studio and all the insanity and people running around and, you know, dummies, dummies, that guy, you know, and then the world's ending and they have to get out of there, you know. And then I also always think of when the guy gets shot in the arm, the pilot, when he's on top of the elevator, he gets shot in the arm and it's so bloody, but he acts so well when he gets shot in the arm. He starts shaking. I remember seeing that and really feeling it. I was just like, oh my God, that's, for some reason, <laughs> there's so much awful stuff in that movie. But that's the thing I don't know why that I think about when I think of it is the way he his, he reacts to getting a shot in the arm.
2: What did you think of Eraserhead when you saw it for the first time?
0: Oh man, Eraserhead was, just opened up all these possibilities within cinema you know you just it wasn't like anything i had seen before it was so genuine to itself you know it was just from somebody who was you could just tell david lynch i mean i'd seen blue velvet so i knew who he was but then when i watched racerhead it was kind of um just someone following their instincts and just being just true to themselves and it was something that so many people told me how weird it was and i didn't I go, oh this is a a movie about a guy afraid of getting married and having a kid, you know, and you watch and you go, I bet this guy was, you know, married and had a kid and was freaked out. And then I, you know, read his book and yeah, he was, (laughs) you know, it was just like, it was an artistic expression of his fears, you know, of he's married to someone and her family and, and, you know, getting this girl pregnant, who's a little crazy and not really, and she doesn't like him, and they have this really acrimonious relationship, and he lusts for that woman across the hallway, and fear of having a baby, and what if that baby is deformed, you know? I always remember when the baby's crying, and it's in the night, and has the humidifier on, and then he turns on the light, and the baby has all the sores over his face, and Jack Nance goes, oh, you are sick. (laughs) I was like, Jesus Christ. And then you know the lady in the elevator and the sorry the uh the lady in the radiator you know her coming out of the darkness when she sings uh, in heaven I always thought that was so creepy she just comes right out of total darkness I just appreciated something that worked on this kind of like horror film level but was so unique to itself to that person and it was such a it's just very honest and heartbreaking And again, keep in mind, this is something very relatable to people. It was like a guy, just his own expression of what he was going through, but it came out in this weird story. You know, I I just thought, oh, wow, you could do that. That's really cool.
2: I think he consciously engages the monster movies of his youth, too. And certainly in um, Twin Peaks, The Return, episode eight.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it all kind of has this 50s kind of... 60s vibe to it especially that scene with the parents you know you you watch what happens in that scene and if you don't say what the scene is but you just put it out in an outline it is ozzy and harriet kind of thing you know going to meet the parents they sit down to eat dinner and everything like that but in this one it's you know the chicken starts shooting blood out between its legs basically and it's uh you know these close-ups of the orifice and it's just this it's this like terror of, I don't know, sexuality or something, you know what I mean? It's it's, it's really unnerving, but it means something. It's not just kind of surface and, and there for effect, you know? In his best stuff, I always feel like there's always this really, really deep meaning to it that I think to him is really simple,
2: right. you know? <laughs> of course. Of course. Why should he explain it? That yeah, <laughs> I don't have to explain it to you, assholes. Have you seen um, The Elephant Man recently?
0: Elephant Man is a... Brilliant film, yeah. It was so heartbreaking, too. I remember my parents telling me about The Elephant Man, and I thought it was sad about a deformed man who couldn't lay down to sleep, and if he lay down, he'd die, you know. It was so heartbreaking. And for David Lynch to be able to take that script and to take that and bring some of his own thing to it and his own kind of be intuitive with it, but not smother it, you know, He's still... He made like an incredibly handsome movie. You don't think, I give Mel Brooks, deserves a lot of credit for seeing a racer head and being like, yeah, this guy could shoot Elephant Man with all these massive British actors and and something that needs a really specific, gentle touch to it. And John Hurt's performance is amazing. And, and uh, Anthony Hopkins is just, Anthony Hopkins, the first time he sees him and you don't, he just cries, remember? It's so heartbreaking. And yeah, that, that was a brilliant scene where he comes in, and you don't even show the Elephant Man. It's just Anthony Hopkins' reaction to him, and just one tear goes down his eye. I mean, it's pretty startling that the guy who's doing Elephant, the guy who did Racerhead could, um, on his second film and first big studio film, have the this kind of confidence of how to stage things and shoot things. It was pretty amazing.
2: And I'm actually putting that in the the body horror Episode, his category, but in a way of sort of flipping it, that everyone sees him as being monstrous, and of course he's this beautiful soul of mm-hmm. the poet. In a way, though, is that also just metaphor for how everyone is as we progress through life and gradually disintegrate?
0: Yeah, I guess so. My, a friend of mine told me he saw Elephant Man in the theater, and there was a scene where Elephant Man's talking to the, the singer woman, and it's a very sweet, gentle scene, and she's kind of looking at him like he's a human and she's saying it's so nice to meet you and it's this quiet moment. And the guy in the theater went, kill an elephant man. (laughs) Like he's like, this is a monster movie, right? When's elephant man gonna start killing people? (laughs) Like, this guy was bitten by an elephant. (laughs) He's here. Like, what are we waiting on? You know, this whole movie is about a guy, if he lays down, he dies. This isn't, you know, I thought that was funny.
2: The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. Uh, what was your reaction the first time you saw that film?
0: You know, the I remember seeing it for the first time and thinking, you know, it was going to be really gory, and it was, wasn't gory at all. And it was actually, it was like watching Psycho or something. You know, it was more of a thriller. And again, it was the atmosphere of that film and the way it kind of leads you into the horror and the, and the kind of situation that you're in was brilliant. I grew up in Oklahoma and that was shot in Texas, but I related to the kind of landscape and the, and how hot it, you, that, that movie, you feel how hot it is. You feel how it, how just disgustingly sweaty and you could almost smell that house. You can, that dinner, that dinner scene, the long table with all those people, you can almost smell how awful it is. But how Toby Hooper made something so visceral and so kind of, deeply, deeply disturbing and how it just unfolds. So, so I mean, just even they, they show up to that house and you hear the generator running remember? and that's it. You don't need anything else. You know what I mean? It's just these people talking you hear a generator running in the background and there's just something unnerving about it. And then when that guy walks in and trips and he looks up and the first time you see Leatherface and he hits him and the guy starts shaking on the ground. It's so unnerving. And then he takes them in that long, yeah. you know, on the thing. And then the, now we're in score, you know, I just, that moment is, is just, that's gotta be one of the best horror moments ever. You know, that's your introduction to your main kind of monster or whatever. And that, that awful moment when she goes to the gas station and she thinks she's fine. And that guy's like, well, I'll help you. And then he, the, the realization that he's a family member of Leatherface and, and, and I actually think the, the spookiest shot in Texas Chainsaw of Magic when I think about it is when they're, he's captured her, you know, the uh, the old man, and she has the bag on her head and he's kind of like hitting her and going like, ah, ah, and like all this kind of, um, the amount of mystery and kind of ambiguity of like, who are all these people? Why are they here? Why is, how do they know each other? <laughs> what is like, what is going on here? It doesn't explain it to you and that's what's so terrifying, but I found really is, is uh, looking out at the truck at night and you see the house in the distance and it's pulling up and the, and it's going across a dirt road, headlights, illuminating the dirt. And then very slowly, it starts to make out the hitchhiker that we saw at the beginning of the movie. And he's just walking out in the middle of the night. And then he gets in the car and you go, I I found that so unnerving that that guy just kind of roaming around at night, (laughs) you know, and the, and the dread you feel that you go, oh, my God, that guy from the beginning, he's all this shit I've tried to dodge this whole movie. They're all related. <laughs> and, and I'm about to have dinner with them. I just, I did an episode of Barry called Ronnie Lilly. And there's an ending shot that's totally inspired by Texas Chainsaw Massacre where I'm looking at Steven Root. And you hear a helicopter come and then we go, and it cuts to black. And I was talking to my editor about it, and he didn't get it. And I showed him the very last shot of Texas Chainsaw Massacre where he's swinging the, tex- the chainsaw around, and it just goes, hey! and just cuts to black. I remember seeing that in the theater, and still, you know, whatever, it was 20 years after it came out, and everyone just stayed there. The credits roll, the lights came up, no one moved. I mean, that movie just, it gets under your skin, and it's, it's still really powerful. It's a real powerful piece of filmmaking, that movie.
2: And it doesn't, yeah, it's not really ending. I mean, her story is ending, but they're the, all they're, still
0: there. They're all still out there. I mean, the one guy got hit by a big semi, so he's gone. But Grandpa and everybody, they're, still, they're all still there. Yeah. I like to think the sequel never existed. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I know you read and did a live reading of The Man with Kaleidoscope Eyes. Yeah. Right? So I wanted to ask you about Roger Corman. Oh, the man. Superman stuff.
0: Roger Corman, I mean, most people think about him as the guy... Who discovered all these massively famous important people? When I think of Roger Corman, I think of a Bucket of Blood, a Creature from the Haunted Sea, and the Poe movies. But a Bucket of Blood was the one that really—I love that film. You know, with Dick Miller and and uh, and I thought it was so funny. That was the thing about it. It was it was a funny satire about beatniks and like what is art and the guy dabs a cat through a wall and puts cement over it and he brings it to the art gallery and it's this cat with a you know knife out of it he just is like it's called dead cat you know it's just such a lazy name charles griffith is like he was a real i think that guy's a really important screenwriter i mean he really i felt like they kind of created a genre with with a bucket of blood I, i think that's a wonderful film and, and Creature from the Haunted Sea, you know, the Creature wins at the end, which I was crazy watching it, you know, I was like, how are they going to defeat it? And then it has that that weird thing where it's underwater and it's like with the treasure that it wanted. It's just so janky. But you can tell that the stories were interesting. And there was a lot of energy behind it. I always thought there was a lot of energy in the performances, a lot of energy in the way it was shot. Like, he's a really good director. I think Roger Cormo's. I mean, those Poe movies, Mask of Red Death is a really well-made movie, I think. Nicholas Rogue shot it. I mean, it looks great. Like, he got better and then uh, fostered the careers of all these amazing people. But I always appreciated Wasp Woman I liked, too. I think it was fun. But I I just appreciated the um, amount of hard work and ingenuity. I mean, those movies have zero budget on them. And they work just based on his strength of will kind of thing you know i mean it, but they're palpable movies they're really they're not kind of discarded fair you know i i think there's always something to them especially the ones written by charles griffith i think there was something really interesting about them
2: do you like attack of the crab monsters familiar with that one
0: yeah th- that and like it conquer the world are okay like i think they're fun you know but i always feel like those are the movies where he's he's kind of figuring his chops out you know like they're really cheap-looking, but it's like he's he's having fun with them. Like when you get the Bucket of Blood, Little Shop of Horrors, Creatures from the Haunted Sea, like you know he's having fun. It's like the idea of the B movie. He's almost commenting on it, you know, or it's like saying, well, they wouldn't do a tone like a Bucket of Blood in a big movie, maybe. So let's we'll do it here. What can we get away with, you know, man-eating plant and feed me and all that from Little Shop of Horrors, or. The scene with Jack Nicholson the famous thing with you know the guy who likes pain you know Dennis thing it was just like you just felt like it was a bunch of a, a group of friends making a thing and and you could tell how much he was enjoying what everyone was bringing to the table i i have a real fondness for those movies
2: tell me a little bit about Dario Argento and your feelings about his work
0: dario argento i'm always his stuff is really violent <laughs> <laughs> i'm not a big fan of slasher movies I've never, like, seeing like, you know, women getting killed with knives and the black gloves, but of Crystal Plumage was, is a really well-made movie, and and, and um, I like that. And um, But, yeah, you watch gentle movies, kind of watching him going, like, how's he going to kill this person? <laughs> <laughs> what awful way is he going to murder this person? <laughs> you know? Yeah, his stuff, I've... I've I think it are okay. I was more of a Mario Bava, Kill Baby Kill, Black Sunday, that stuff. But I, slasher movies were never really my, my thing.
2: But with Bava and his, on the one hand, Black Sunday, which is a gorgeous black and white movie. Yeah. But then also when you think of Bava, I think you think of color.
0: Yeah, you think of just a lot of color and, and smoke. And Kill Baby Kill is a really good movie, I think. But yeah, the Black Sunday is just gorgeous. And again, the opening of that, Barbara Steele getting a mask, the the I mean, Jesus Christ. It's rough. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh the atmosphere of it and the, the the camera work and again it's just very cinematic, you know.
2: Do you go back to the point where like on things like that? Do you Mm-mm. throw that on for fun? Mm-mm. No? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you about Cronenberg films.
0: Oh, I love Cronenberg, early Cronenberg, especially Cronenberg is like David Lynch in a lot of ways to me, because it is this kind of personal expression through that genre, you know, think of a movie like the brood, you know, he was going through a divorce when he made that movie. And that whole movie is this weirdly about like going through a custody battle and it manifests itself into this story about rage giving birth, (laughs) you know, to these little rage kids. And the thing about Cronenberg movies always strikes me is the is the way that they're lit and the way that they're shot. They seem very grounded. They seem very lived in and it feels very Canadian. You know what I mean? It's the light is very kind of harsh white light coming in on people and everyone's kind of pale. And there's something about it being so weirdly kind of familiar and cozy that when then something terrible happens, it is a bigger shock. It's it's the opposite of uh, Mario Bava or Brian De Palma, you know. He wants it to be very calm, you know. There's a really creepy shot in The Brood where they kidnap the main character's kid, the two parka monsters— and they're just three kids walking down the street, in the walking down a road in the snow when a car drives past. And that just looks like three kids walking down the street, you know. And I I'd never really had seen that before. I thought that was really interesting. And the music and everything, it just felt very comforting for some reason. And then... The stories would be about these really these things that you wouldn't even want to, uh, you know, especially the kind of sexual things and something like shivers, rabid. You know, Marilyn Chambers was the thing in her under her armpit, and the idea of you know sexually transmitted diseases and the terror of, of sex, sex being the thing that destroys you. I, I think that the end of Shivers is really terrifying when they're the that slow motion shot of them in the pool and her kissing him and the music and everything i really disturbing. He was able to tap into a thing that, again, is very universal within people. You know, video drum, you know, something like that, where the idea of we've all kind of had the thing of watching something that we probably shouldn't be watching and we're kind of tantalized by it in some way, but we, we don't know why or shouldn't be watching this or, or we're curious about it. Not maybe turned on by it, but like curious about you know faces uh, of death or some sort of snuff film or whatever, and how that that idea that thing becoming the person, the guy's literally having making having sex with the television, pretty much. But again, and like David Lynch, David Cronenberg's very intuitive. You know, it's it's it all feels very personal. Uh, James Woods pulling the gun, that image of him just pulling the gun out of his stomach and then it that weird it's like an appendage of his body and when he when the television shoots him you know and then the tv becomes his chest with the bullet holes on it so they're one in the same and all this i i just thought what am i watching but i understood it on some i didn't know if this is what the guy was intending but i understood it on some intuitive level that idea of video drum and hey, we have this signal of the thing when the guy's showing it to him and it's that awful footage of a woman being beaten in the, the wall. I think the wall is electrified, is what the guy said. It's awful. But you go, why am I wanting to watch this? And the idea of this guy who, who runs in that, that's his, you know, that's his currency and what that stuff does to him, I, th- I thought was really fascinating. And, and I, David Cronenberg also deserves a huge thing about how he's treated sex in horror films not in terms of a slasher movie. It never felt gratuitous to me. It was always this kind of the fear of it and the urges of people and, you know, and all these these deep repressed things that people don't want to think about and what if they all came out. And But, you know, that aside, like David Lynch too, the kind of 50s monster stuff that he grew up with, which you kind of feel can seep into his work, it's the same thing with David Cronenberg. You know, Scanner still has Patrick McGuinn as like it's called Scanners. You're a scanner. You know, he's the 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 proverbial scientist who's like, 1953, a UFO landed in Roswell. You know what I mean? <laughs> he, still, he still has those kind of archetypes in his films. just always fun. I remember watching Scanners at my friend's house, and we were eating pizza, and my friend threw up. Yeah. I remember that very well. My friend Matt, he got really sick when the head blew up. And he just turned around. And he didn't, like, run to the bathroom. It was the guy's head blew up, and he just went, <laughs> And it was like, whoa, dude, what's
2: that? God, I wish I could be moved by a film (laughs) that way. He
0: just was like, he was so calm too. We were were like 12 or 13 and it was like,
2: huh. (laughs) (laughs) And that was our interview with Battling Bill Hader. Next time, Megan Fox. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayanga. Produced by Kurt Sayanga. Engineered by Chris Heckman. With music by Maestro Joseph Bishara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos Heckman and Lacey Oglevoi. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the AMC television series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers, Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer, Ben Raphael Sure. Thanks to Kelly Nash, Richard Drew, Chris Powers, and most valuable player, Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Sayanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror and cut.